Let's join together in prayer. So God, we, um, we give you thanks that you are a great God. And today as we um, come, to, uh, come to you and actually have come to you already through worship, but now also coming through your word, we pray that you would form us and guide us and be with us. And again, God, fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to be exactly who you've called us to be, that, um, that our lives and um, the life of our church would just be a kind of light in the midst of the darkness. So we give you thanks for your love and pray that you will um, guide us through this day and through this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So you saw the uh, Mother's Day reminder already. Don't forget about that. May 10th is coming up. Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of great stuff happening here in terms of um, KZ and Megan Leff and Jeanette have all been working really hard on um, getting things available for people. So we've realized that in this Philippians time, there's um, a little break in the Gospel Project curriculum. And so, um, but at the same time, there's several things that um, Kids Zone has put together to try to encourage you. And so a couple notes, notes and I'm actually just going to read this because it's the best way to do it, um, is that every Friday at 1 p.m., um, there will be on the Facebook page an opportunity for you to get a sneak peek video and look ahead at the week's lesson or the weekend's lesson. So make sure to take advantage of that. Then also every Friday at 3 p.m. on the same Facebook page, they're going to post a family worship guide, which includes um, ideas for worship, games, crafts. This is great, isn't it? I mean, like, I think, you know, we're all trying to figure out what do we do during this time, and especially with kids being home, you know, how do we engage them? And then also, if you're looking for a good um, children's video series, he, he, she says to actually check out the um, Mr. Phil show, um, and he does this whole thing on joy coming right out of Philippians, and that's found in Right Now Media, and so we'd invite you to do that. And most importantly, if you have any questions about anything, if there's any way that we can be of help to you, then feel free to reach out to, to Megan um, or to Jeanette, um, and they're both um, available. You can find their um, email addresses on the website. So with that said, uh, it's great that they're doing this. And wanted to also just make you aware that Today, we will be taking communion at the end of the service, and so if you um, have not already, would encourage you to, uh, to locate some communion um, elements. You know, usually it's some bread and some juice or something like that. You can be creative. Um, it's not really about the elements as much as it is about the sacrifice of Christ, and so would invite you to do that as well. So, all right. So a little while back, a few years ago, I read a book um, that was by a professor of sociology at Claremont Graduate School. Um, her name is Mary Poplin, and it was called um, Finding Calcutta. So Mary had hit sort of a wall in her career, and um, she was in what she called a mid-career crisis. And, but just a few weeks before sort of hitting this crisis, she had found herself doing something that she thought she would never do. Um, she was in a small Methodist church, and she knelt, knelt excuse me, at the rail near the front of the sanctuary, and she prayed this. She said, Jesus, if you are real, come and get me. And then she said later, and he did. Now she was trying to figure out what it was that God wanted her to do with her life. Now, it just so happened that she had a four-month sabbatical coming, um, so she decided to actually travel to India and spend two of the four months with Mother Teresa. And it just so happened that Mary arrived in Calcutta the same year that uh, Mother Teresa died. But she wanted to visit so that she could actually learn more about the social work that's done there. Now, Mother Teresa always says that her work is not social, rather it's a religious work. Um, and as Mary stayed and worked there, she came to see how true that statement actually was. It took the love of God working in and through the Sisters of Charity to be able to sustain what they were doing. Um, one of Mother Teresa's favorite sayings is this, that small acts with great love. Um, small acts cover sort of the gambit of things that they did each day. I mean, it included um, everything they did with the poorest of the poor. They'd hold a hand or maybe hold a baby. They'd wipe a face or bring a cup of water, share a slice of bread, pray with someone, walk someone to their house, sing to them. 
Um, because they had so few resources, the main gift they had was simply to be with people, a, a, a gift of being there with others. And so these small acts with great love were done over and over again by the Sisters of Charity. Daily, they would live out the reality of what the kingdom of God was like, and they would love and bless all the people that were around them. And oftentimes, you know, Mother Teresa was sort of criticized um, by those who were outside the system. Um, they'd say that, um, you know, how come you're not trying to change the main things? I mean, how come you keep just doing this day-by-day -day work? You should be working on changing the whole system. And she said this, she said, um, you take care of the future. I'm concentrating on the needs of the people today who are right here with me. And she never criticized back, but she had a clear sense that both those things, changing the system, but also seeing to people's needs were both important. Thomas Merton said this one time, he said, and this is a pretty catchy quote, so listen, there are plenty of people who will give up their interests for the sake of society but cannot stand any of the people that they live with. Uh, what a great quote. I mean, so the reality is that we often want to affect the system, but we really don't like even our families or the people we live with or our relatives or our friends, our neighbors, all that kind of thing. And, and there's actually a pretty big divide there that I think we need to be aware of. And so we all have these grand ideas of how we would change the whole world, but what about the part of the world that we see every day? You see, one of the things that Mary Poplin actually learned in those two months with Mother Teresa was that the Sisters of Charity saw Christ in each person they met. And they sought in all that they did to incarnate God's love in their own lives. And for Mary, this actually changed her whole um, trajectory in life. She returned to the school, the graduate school, and started to actually look at everything that was there with new eyes. John Ortberg said this, that oftentimes we think our calling is out there, but maybe our calling is actually closer to us than we think. And she began to see her position as a professor now as a kind of calling. She went back, but she was not the same teacher. And it showed in her classes and in her life. She determined not to let a single student slip through her classes without giving them the full benefit of her attention. And you know what happened? The students noticed that, but so did the faculty. So here's the question. What would happen if we all did small acts with great love? You know, Mother Teresa saw Jesus in every person she helped, and Jesus set the example of self-giving love. So as Christ followers, we're called to follow Jesus' example the one who emptied himself in order to love and serve other people. And so we come today to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking primarily at verses 1 through 11. Um, it's this letter of Paul to the Philippians. It was probably one of the first New Testament letters to be written somewhere about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. And Philippians, from the start to the finish, is really a word of encouragement. Paul is saying, hey, God who did this thing, as we said last week, this start of this thing will bring it to completion. God is with you, um, continuing to let the Philippians know that God is real and alive and active in their lives. And, and there's a wonderful twist in this part of the letter because at this point, Paul is a little bit old and a little bit worn, and he's also in prison, and that makes it also even more difficult to understand the optimistic nature of the letter. It's something about 20 different times in the course of this short letter, he uses words like this. He uses the word joy and rejoice, peace, content, contentment, and thanksgiving. It's a letter full of love and joy. And, and Paul can't really help it because everywhere he looks, he sees God at work. He sees God at work in the life of the Philippian church. Um, he sees God at work even in his own imprisonment. And, and he realizes in his life that God is present with him. So at the heart of the book um, of Philippians, chapter 2, is one of the earliest known poems or hymns that tell us how the early church viewed Jesus. And it describes one of the most difficult theological um, concepts we ever could talk about, which is namely the incarnation. That God came in the flesh and walked around us here on earth. 
You see, God was revealed in Jesus. And in that day and culture, that was a subversive, revolutionary message. To call Jesus the Son of God meant that you believed that Jesus is the one from God, not the emperor. And to say he was Lord was even more rebellious as far as Rome was concerned. In this word of, world of Augustus, um, they would have been shocked beyond belief to think about an idea that the one true God might be known at last in the person of a Jewish baby born in a stable um, that had to flee to Egypt for safety and later was crucified. But you know, it's not just them. We struggle with that too today. But this wonderfully poetical passage invites us to start from Jesus, start with him, and then rethink our whole picture of God by looking at him. And the picture's challenging because it shows a God who is seen most clearly when he abandons all of his rights for the sake of the world. And Paul drives that home to the Philippians. And he says to them, that is the same mind of Christ pattern of thinking that belongs to you because you belong to him. So the one who emptied himself, this Jesus emptied himself in love and service. And so Paul's advice to them, love sacrificially, look to the interests of others, not your own, have the mind of Christ. He emphasizes service and love, the true trademarks of the church. So we're going to start with Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And, and here Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, Paul is basing um, his appeal on the deepest experiences common to every Christian, the encouragement that we find in Christ, the consolation of love and sharing, the, the spirit, the mutual sympathy, compassion. And unity dominates his thinking. He's making use of his skill as a writer to convey to the Philippians how important all of this in Christ life kinds of things are. And we know what it's like when these things do not happen, you know, I still think oftentimes about the best stories I've ever heard about people feeling loved, supported, and encouraged. They all come out of church life. I mean, they do. But the worst stories I've ever heard about people being hurt also come out of church life. And so he piles claws upon claws, words that are rarely, rarely found anywhere else in the New Testament. And, and he begins each sentence with a condition. He says, if. And, and it's interesting because in the Greek, it's very obvious that this conditional clause expects a positive response. His focus here is humility, unity, and self-sacrifice. So, as I said, um, you know, this Greek conditional statement, and this is um, a fun thing to sort of know, is that it actually becomes the equivalent of an affirmative statement. So here's how Paul would have said it. He expected the answer to these questions to be, of course, of course this is the case, absolutely. That is exactly what it means to be in Christ. So here we go, like, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, and Paul would say, of course there is. This is what it's all about, absolutely. And then he says, if there's any consolation of love, and he would say, of course, this is the case, absolutely. So say the next one with me. If there's any sharing in the spirit, of course <laughs> there is. This is the case, absolutely. How about any kind of compassion and sympathy? And again, Paul says, absolutely, this is the case. Of course there is. And so with all that said, he moves on to verse 2. And he says this, he says, Make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So how? Well, through unity, sameness of mind, sameness of love, unity of mind, Paul is encouraging this young Philippian church be who you are. Live into the reality of who God has called you to be. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel, which refers back to Philippians 1, 27. 
But Paul's main concern, his supreme request for the Philippians is that they would strive for unity coupled with humility. That you would think the same. He's not asking for some kind of drab uniformity of thought because actually to make it so everybody had to think the same thing would actually lead to division. But his request of the Philippians is that they would strive for unity that's actually coupled with humility. So unity of spirit, it actually flows from humility of spirit. And self-sacrifice flows from a willingness to restrain my own desires in order to satisfy the desires of others. And, And this, we know, is what it means to be in community. So being a follower of Christ never means that we give up our mind but rather that God is reforming how we think and how we see the world. We've been given the mind of Christ. And so there's a unity of spirit in which there's a powerful tension held together by this overmastering loyalty to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it means to be the church. And so such unity is only possible when Christians are humble and bold enough to lay hold of the unity already given in Christ and take it more seriously than their own importance. They are to be of the same mind, literally, means to think the same. They're to share a common attitude. They're to have the same love, be in full accord, live out their common union together. We all understand that. And yet, it's interesting because most of the time, churches tend to highlight their differences rather than their similarities. You know, there are big differences. I mean, you know, there are things that set every church apart, and that's part of God's working within the local body, that that God actually does um, sort of mold that church and form that church in a certain way, and that's really important for us. But, But what about all the things that we actually do that are similar? I mean, here's a couple. You know, all Christian churches call Jesus Lord. We say Jesus is Lord. Um, We all read the Bible. We read the scriptures and study the scriptures. Um, Every church does sacraments. They baptize people. They take communion. Um, Every church has a form of governance. I mean, we we all have leadership positions, ways of running things that are in uh, an organized manner. And so the Philippians are mindful of these unifying factors that God is working out in the midst of their life together. They share one soul. They possess a common affection, desire, passion, a sediment, sentiment for living together in unity. And unity, actually, is really essential for spiritual growth. Um, it's the progress of the gospel and the victory of the believers over their adversaries. So our Actions are based on attitudes. On one side stands selfish ambition, and on the other side stands humility. Selfish ambition refers to those who think they're more important than they really are, but humility is always the proper stance before God. Humility is the ability, Paul would say in Romans 12, 3, to have a sober judgment of yourself. It, it doesn't mean um, ripping yourself down or tearing yourself apart, but it also doesn't mean um, assuming something that's not true, but having an actual balanced view of yourself, knowing what your strengths are, knowing what your weaknesses are, and being able to honestly talk with others about those things. And so Paul sort of ends this second verse with that reminder um, Have that sober judgment. Um, Look at yourself realistically. Be able to be thoughtful and truthful about what your strengths are as well as your weaknesses. And then he goes on to verse 3 and he says, And do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourself. Verse 4, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So, unity is impossible if each of us are living simply for ourselves, if each is promoting his or her own cause, each is seeking their own advantage. But in these verses, Paul emphasizes that those actions must stop. Uh, But there's other actions that actually need to continue. He says, stop being selfish. Don't be conceited. He starts with sort of the negative view of it. 
Unity is not accomplished when one person assertively, even arrogantly, claims to have the right opinion, but who, in fact, is in error. Um, that person is conceited without reason, and Paul would say is deluded. Um, where such empty conceit is present, unity is absent. It's not available. Another negative factor in the Philippian church at this point, or actually in any Christian community, is that they have to stop being selfish and just looking out for their own interests to the exclusion of the interests of others. You see, this kind of viewpoint is divisive and contrary to the nature of the God that they worship. And so Paul reminds them, he says, look out for, notice, keep your eyes on. They're to keep their eyes focused on the good points of the others that are part of their community. And in this way, they'll grow to appreciate each other's contribution to being the church together because we are together, the people of God. In verse four, he sort of has the linchpin of all this. He says, consider others better than yourselves. Um, this is the guarantee of the success of the Christian community. And it's not really a new concept because all along um, in the Old Testament, there's a note that's struck that God chooses the lowly and the humble. Um, God chooses the unimportant and the unknown for his plans. God saves the lowly and the humble. God looks upon the lowly. God pays attention to the prayers of the lowly. God gives grace to the lowly, but opposes the proud. So lowliness and humility are positive virtues in the Bible, especially as they affect the way in which people behave towards others, and also in the way that they approach God. So anybody who humbly approaches God would never be turned away. But humility defined means to consider each other better than yourselves. And it means to calculate or reckon. And so he points to this proper evaluation of, of others and also of oneself in light of the holiness of God, the Christian gospel, and the example of Christ. Paul says your goal should be to set others above yourselves. So when we do that, then problems of disunity disappear and we discover a deep respect for each other. The Christian community in Philippi is to regard, regard others as better than themselves. It's not a kind of false modesty or a lack of self-esteem, but rather it's a recognition of the rights and achievements of each other. And Paul encourages them and impresses them that they are in this recipients of his encouragement and love. They're members of an extraordinary fellowship created by the Spirit of God. These are the things that are true of their life together. They're an object of God's affection and compassion. They're obliged to strive in, humility, in, in harmony and humility. Excuse me. And Paul asked them that they might have this kind of inner compassion for each other that's full of love. They, they possess a common soul, share a common affection for each other have a common desire to live together in unity, adopt a humble attitude that estimates others as better than themselves. And in such a climate as that, unity thrives, the church grows, and the individual Christian is strengthened in their faith. And so with that said now, we come to sort of the main, um, the main segue into this chapter we approach chapter 2, verse 5. And, and here, again, as I said earlier, Paul introduces one of the best-known and influential passages um, in all of Paul's writing, a very early hymn of the church. Pliny the Younger wrote to the emperor Tra Trajan in 112 AD, saying, these Christians sing hymns to Christ as if he were God. And so here we come now to this passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Listen as I read. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's important here to realize that Paul is not urging the Philippians to imitate Christ. Instead, he's saying, be what you already are. You are already in Christ. Show among yourselves this attitude that actually arises because you are in Christ. You know, a lot of times we guilt ourselves into trying to make our lives conform to God's wishes. But that's actually a lesson in missing the point. The fact is Christ already inhabits the life of the believer. So let him live through you. The attitude that's appropriate for those who are in Christ is that this shown by this historical Jesus, this person who actually laid down his life for us. So where does this passage originate from? Well, there's a certain shape that's given to this hymn. And in fact, the very existence of the the hymn itself may have been sort of the deep meditation by Paul or some other Christian or perhaps a contemporary of Paul but it takes into account a certain event where Jesus did an action, sort of an acted out parable for us. Um, it, it refers, I think, back to John chapter 13, and it has sort of the same idea behind it. And I'd encourage you to go back and look at that at some time, but there's a passage in John 13 that really sort of parallels Philippians 2, 6 through 11. It, it starts off by saying that Jesus rose from the table and he took off his outer garments and laid them aside. And, and Paul to that would say, he emptied himself. He laid aside his divine nature. Then it comes on, it says, then he took a towel and he wrapped it about himself. Um, he took on the form of a slave or a servant. And Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 7, they took the form of slave being born in the likeness of human beings and being found in human form, he humbled himself. And and then when Jesus is done washing the disciples' feet in John 13, he actually takes back his outer outer garments. And and he starts that whole passage in John 13 by saying um, he knows who he is and that God has called him and turned all things over to him. And so again, Paul echoes that and says, therefore God exalted him Verse 9, to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. And so, so we have this interesting thought, perhaps in the minds of John and Paul, that, that as they're thinking about this, they're thinking about this enacted parable where Jesus takes off and admits who he is and washes his disciples' feet. And of course, the challenge there is that Jesus says, In that I have done this to you, um, you must do it for each other. And whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to hold the first place among you must be everybody's slave. So while this Philippian text is a hymn to illustrate powerfully Paul's teaching, but it's at this point identical with that of Jesus' health Uh, humble and self-sacrificing service um, to each of those disciples. So Jesus does always serve as the supreme example of the humble, self-sacrificing, self-denying, self-giving service that Paul has been urging the Philippians to practice in their relationship to each other. And this hymn, this early Christ hymn, is actually a commentary on how we should live, live in community together. Verse 5 says, you know, have this frame of mind, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who although he was in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he actually emptied himself. He took on the form of a slave and being born um, in human likeness, found in human form. This word who links and identifies the historical Jesus with the same one who existed before the incarnation. And the burden of the reminder of this verse 6 describes Christ's preexistence. He was in the form of God. And in our approach of the meaning of form, it may be best to admit that it's actually pretty elusive. It's hard to understand. But it's true that form, this word, always signifies and truly and fully expresses 
the being which underlies it. So when this word is applied to God, it refers to God's deepest being, to what God is in God's self and essence. And why is that? Well, because the fact of the matter is God is different than we are. God is other than. To say that Christ existed in the form of God is to say that outside his human nature, Christ had no other manner of existing except apart, um, exist, except exist, existing in the form of God. He was in the possession of all the characteristics and qualities that belong to God. And so this expression may actually be a sort of a cautious way um, for the author to say that Christ was God, that he possessed the very nature of God without maybe employing those exact words. Um, the early Christians oftentimes were accused of a kind of polytheism because of their views of the Trinity, of seeing, you know, creator God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, they were seen as polytheistic sometimes, especially in light of the monotheistic religions of that day. But of course, that's not a problem because we all understand the Trinity now, right? Wrong, we don't. So here God continues to work, continues to bring about, continues to serve. Human evaluation from our standpoint sometimes assumes that God like this means having your own way, getting what you want. But being equal with God doesn't mean that Jesus filled himself up. But on the contrary, it means that he emptied himself out. He didn't consider that being equal with God was taking everything to himself, but rather giving everything away for the, uh, for the sake of the other. Put another way, uh, because he was in the form of God, he reckoned equality with God not as a matter of getting, but rather as a matter of giving. So what did he do? Well, he set aside things. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says that Christ became poor, that he might make many rich. And so Christ poured out his life. Christ set aside his rights, did not, did not insist on getting his own way. He, um, he took on human form. So his self-giving was accomplished by taking. His self-emptying was achieved by becoming what he was not before, a, a human being, God in the flesh, incarnate, but also by becoming a slave. He was emptying, not by subtracting, but by actually adding to. He took voluntarily on himself the form of a slave, adopted the nature, the characteristic attributes of a slave. In other words, he literally became a slave. And as a slave, he became a person without advantage. He had no rights, no um, privileges of his own, but it was all for the express purpose of placing himself completely at the service of all of humanity. In serving people, Jesus was serving God. So incarnation is both mission and humiliation. But don't miss what this becoming human actually meant because Christ in the incarnation fully identified himself with humanity. He became truly man, not merely in outward appearance, but in thought and feeling. He shared with every human's plight. And there's no doubt, um, let there be no doubt, that Christ was truly human, um, having to live the same kind of life as any other person had to live. It's important at this point, and I just want to throw this in, that um, you know the real orthodox statement about incarnation is this, that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. And it's interesting and important to note that because the reality is that whenever we start to diminish either the human side or the God side, we end up with lots of different kinds of beliefs. So the orthodox view is that he is actually fully God and fully human. It's not that there's one that's more than the other or one that's less than the other, but this is the orthodox view. And it's also important to note that it's really hard to explain this kind of mystery. 
Um, because, you know, that one could be God, but also be a human person to the fullness, um, that's a really hard thing to figure. Because being that human person to the fullest um, brings with it all the potential, the physical, mental, social, spiritual growth that's proper to humanity. So at the same time, divine and human, God and man, God and human being. And yet the Philippian hymn actually sets forth this paradox and not only affirms it, or not only sets it forth, but actually affirms it. But it also doesn't try to explain it. It's interesting to note that. It just says, this is exactly what happened. And so he adopts the form of a slave, one without advantage, with no rights or privileges of his own. It's, it's the exact opposite of claiming the status and privilege of being equal to God. And there's no greater contrast than that. We, we should never think of this as some kind of process of exchange. Christ did not cease to be in the form of God when he took the form of a slave any more than he ceased to be the son of God when he was sent into the world. On the contrary, it's in his self-emptying and his humiliation that he really reveals to us what God is like. And it's through his taking the form of a slave that we see the form of God. And so Christ empties himself and he becomes a human being and, and he takes on the form of a slave. And then verse 8 comes and says, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so now comes this sort of logical outcome, death. And it says here that he was obedient, but who was he obedient to? He was obedient in identifying himself totally with the human condition. And, and in this case, for him, death meant by crucifixion, the punishment that was reserved in the Roman world for rebels and disobedient slaves, thus making the reality of Christ's self-identification with those who were slaves even more real. It's hard for us to imagine the shock and the horror of the final words um, that were heard by that original audience, excuse me, that original audience, crucified. Christ was crucified. He humbled himself, even to the point of death. His whole life was characterized by self-surrender, self-renunciation, self-sacrifice, humbling himself even to the point of becoming obedient to death. As a slave, he set himself not only to obey God, but to serve all people. Jesus said, I have come to seek and save that which was lost. I've come to serve and give my life a ransom for many. And so Christ's acceptance of death was an ultimate yes to God, but also to all of us, because it's by that gift of grace that we're saved. But it wasn't a natural kind of death. It was a death on a cross. And that conjunction, even, even death on a cross, um, is a striking phrase that reminds us of this humiliation. Crucifixion was borrowed from the Persians, but perfected by the Romans. And it was unusually cruel and humiliating, a kind of capital punishment that was usually reserved for slaves, robbers, assassins, and those who betrayed Rome. It was abhorred, it was horrified by the Jewish people, not only because of the pain and the shame of it, but also because there was a view that any person that was crucified had to have been cursed by God. It was so cruel that the Roman Cicero actually wrote, let, every, let the very name of the cross be far away from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. And so Christ's death by crucifixion was actually the ultimate degradation. It was the lowest point in the descent theme that marks the first part of this hymn. He who was in the form of God, was equal with God, emptied himself, humbled himself, and surrendered himself to a criminal's death. 
And it's this point that the hymn takes a radical change. Whereas the first half spoke of Christ as the acting subject of all the verbs, now in the last half, it is God who acts in Christ, and Christ is the subject and object of the divine action. And so now comes the triumph, and verse 9 says, therefore. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, it concentrates on his exaltation, but also shows that it's a work of God. It's actually the language of exaltation rather than resurrection, and it's probably because the resurrection was already known well throughout the Christian community. But Paul pushes it here to talk about actually Christ being exalted. So verse 9, 10, and 11 say this, Therefore God also highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God lifted Jesus up. God exalted Jesus and gave Jesus the name that is above every name. That It's a name at which every knee will bow or bend it's the one who came in the form of a person, a human in the form of a slave, but is now proclaimed Lord. Our confession should be to acknowledge always, Jesus Christ is Lord. Here the knees are bent and at the name of Jesus, the confession is made of his universal lordship. But in all of this, God honors Jesus, who was in the form of God and who mirrored God's glory. So reflecting again on these prophetic words of Jesus, he said, you know, whoever chooses to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will find it. What will it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Whoever will exalt himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said, you know, Humility leads to become one of the greatest in the kingdom. And he pulled a little child close to him and he said, whoever humbles himself as this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And so Paul says again, therefore God also highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, verse 9, verse 10, so that every name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth, and verse 11, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Christ, who came and made himself lowly, was exalted by God, made high so fact high so fact that everything was put under him and he was given a name that is above all names in ancient times a name was not only a means of distinguishing one individual from another but it also had a way of revealing the inner being the true nature of an individual so when the writer says that god conferred on christ the name that was above every name it was declared that God graciously bestowed on him a designation which distinguished him from all others. It was a title that outranked all other titles. But he also, God, bestowed on him a nature which coincided with that title, giving substance and meaning to it. Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the earliest confessional formula used by the church. Jesus Christ is is Lord. And he is still that today for Christians all over the world. He is still that today for you and for me. So what do we do with all of this? I mean, this is a beautiful, majestic hymn of the church that reminds us of who Christ is. Doesn't give us lots of explanation on how all that works, but, but by faith we understand that this is who God is and what God's come to do. But some of the things that we need to think about, I think, as a result of this passage is that Christian community and service always means laying down our lives. Um, it means giving up our right to be in charge. It means living to live, learning to live together and it means placing each other above ourselves. 
it, it means actually listening and loving each other. And so Paul reminds the Philippians, <laughs> the shortest way up is by stepping down. The surest way to gain um, for oneself is by giving up on self. The surest way to life is by actually laying your life down. And the surest way to service, or excuse me, to greatness, is by actually serving others. You see, the Philippians have been acting in a spirit of ambition. They've been thinking that they're better than the others, or believing that they were above serving each other. They were studying how they might actually promote themselves and get ahead without giving adequate attention to the welfare of their neighbor or their brother or sister in the church. But this Christ hymn, this, this Christ who is in this hymn, challenges every one of these false values. Um, he becomes, therefore, the ultimate example and model of action. Whenever anyone does confess openly and gladly that Jesus Christ is Lord, God is pleased. The Father is glorified, for his, people, for his purposes are fulfilled, and God's hopes for the world are realized. Jesus, as God in the flesh, came and walked the streets of this world. But in order to bring about love and grace, and Paul reminds us today that those who call Jesus Lord are a part of God's greater plan to make all things right someday. This is where God is headed and where God is drawing us to join in. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, Paul says to the Philippians, you need to live out the reality of what God is like. This God who came to abandon his rights to love and bless the world. And so when the church loves all people we lean into the reality of God's new creation by being the presence of Jesus to people. Lives of love and holiness are best expressed in love for God and neighbor. But you know, loving others can really be pretty difficult. We joke about it all the time. I was uh, around Valentine's Day last year, uh, was at the card shop and sort of looked at things, and I picked up a couple of cards, and one of them said, um, if I had an ice cream cone, I'd give you half. If I had six candles, you get three. If I had two apples, one would be yours. If I won the lottery, I'd send you a postcard from Tahiti. But see, love <laughs> actually requires presence. Not just proximity, but focus, attention. We have to be fully engaged and present. Not thinking about what still needs to be done, not preoccupied with some problem we're working out, not distracted by the past, or even preoccupied by the future, but fully present where we're at. Love requires us to stop and actually see who it is that's right in front of us the people we are with all the time, the people that actually mean the most to us, and the people around us who need a touch from God. Love always requires us to drop our own agendas and learn what is important to another, to walk with them like Jesus did. What would happen if we all acted with great love, if we did small things with great love? If we incarnated God's love in a way that the world would experience God's love through us, what would happen if we emptied ourselves so God could fill us? In this season of isolation, waiting, and social distancing, don't miss what God has put right before you. You will have many opportunities to do little acts with great love, to be present to God, to love and bless the world. Who knows what may happen? One thing for sure, people will catch a glimpse of Christ in you. Jesus emptied himself. You know, today, um, and um, I think I forgot to say this earlier, but if you, um, you want to pause for a second and go get some stuff for communion, would invite you to do that, and, um, and then we'll continue with that. But one of the things that happened is Jesus emptied himself. He, he gave of himself. And I've got a cup and a piece of bread here, just a reminder of what it was that Christ came to do for us. Christ 
um, was with his disciples in the upper room on the night that he was betrayed. And after they'd had dinner together, he took a piece of bread and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he, he broke it and handed it out to them. And he said to them, take and eat of this and do this in remembrance of me. And then he also took a cup um, and he said, this is um, the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out on my behalf. And he said to them, take and drink of this and do this also in remembrance of me. These are God's gifts for us as the people of God. We're, we're invited to this table. It's a table that reminds us that, that Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his body, he shed his blood so that we could understand God's great love for us. So I'm gonna pray together and then I'm gonna actually lead you in, um, in actually taking the elements together. So would you join with me in prayer? So Holy God, um, in this mystery, we are grateful for who you are and for all that you've come to do. And we pray, God, that you would meet us today um, in the breaking of the bread and in the drinking of the cup, that we would be reminded that you are a God who is self-emptying, but that you also, by emptying yourself, have filled our lives with your grace and your love and your joy. So meet us, God, we ask right now in Jesus' name, amen. So I'd invite you to um, take a piece of bread or a cracker, whatever it is that you have, and simply to take and to eat of that. This is Christ's body that's given for you. Let's eat together. And then also Christ's blood that's shed for us, the reminder that Christ paid the price for us, the price that we could not pay for ourselves. I'd invite you to take and to drink. Jesus paid all of it for us. He emptied himself so that we could understand God's love. So I'd like to invite you to actually sing together with us this last song as we close our service.
Thank you for being here today. It's been um, great to be together. I know we haven't seen each other, but we will. And we're all looking forward to being back together. And um, if there's any way that we can be of service to you, uh, we'd love to do that. So let us know. Um, feel free to contact us. All of the um, emails are on the website, all that kind of thing. But we'd love to be in conversation with you and just see how things are going. So remember this passage in Philippians. You know, Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and of course the answer is, yes, there is. If there's any consolation from love, absolutely. If there's any sharing in the Spirit, absolutely, it's there, yes. Any compassion and sympathy, yes, there is. Then show the world by the way you live together in unity, Paul says to the Philippian church. So may you go with that this week in a way where God continues to work in your life to bring about all the good things that are part of this relationship that we have with God. And, and Paul writes in Romans, he says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So may God's hope be planted in your heart this week. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. God bless you. Great to see you today. Take care, and we'll be back in touch soon.